shepherds followed him from Galilee and the Decapolis, from Jerusalem and Judea and from beyond the Jordan. Seeing the crowds, he went up on the mountain, and when he sat down, his disciples came to him, and he opened his mouth and taught them. trumpets, one flute, and a tambourine, Rod Buckner. Love it. Love it. Hey, friends, welcome to South Fellowship. We are so glad that you're here today. And if you're new with us, you're jumping in in a great part. We are exploring the Sermon on the Mount this summer as a community. And we are sort of in the middle of Jesus's teaching. It's in the Gospel of Matthew. Matthew, one of Jesus's disciples, records a collection of Jesus's teachings in one place. And it's probably the most famous sermon given ever. If you have your Bible, you can open to Matthew chapter 5. Over the last few weeks, we've explored some really light, fun subjects like um, adultery and lust, divorce and remarriage and being people who are honest. And so Jesus decided to lighten up a little bit on us and just today talk about loving our enemies. So that should be really easy, right? This is one of those passages that probably isn't all that difficult to understand, it's just really difficult to live out. It's difficult to apply. And so uh, let's pray and ask Jesus that he would, by the power of his spirit, open us up to what he would say. Lord, um, we long to not only hear, but to obey, because we know that that's where the foundation of our life is formed. And, and so, Father, that's our posture today. Would you move? Would you convict? Would you lead us to righteousness for our joy and for the sake of your name. Amen. Amen. The year was 525 BC, and King Cambyses II of Persia marched his army towards Egypt. But he knew something interesting about the Egyptian people. They had a deep love for cats. That's right, our feline friends. And so what they did was they carved into their shields an outline of a cat. And they brought with them hundreds of cats onto the battlefield. Now, in Egypt, it was a capital offense to kill a cat. Now, I think we should uphold those kind of people as heroes, but evidently they didn't agree. I'm just kidding. Okay, so I started reading you a little bit to see where I go with this story. This is actually true. You can Google it. It's called the Battle of, P of Pelusium that happened Persia versus Egypt. They went onto the battlefield with hundreds of cats. And because the Egyptians so revered cats, they had a god named Besed that was sort of formed and shaped in the image of a cat. They didn't want to kill the cats. And so the Persians were throwing cats into the faces of the Egyptian army. For 38 years, I've been wondering what good a cat is. <laughs> and now we figured it out. Praise Jesus. Now, if you're a cat lover, one, I'll pray for you. And we're going to talk about enemy love today. So you can just apply that to me now. Now, what's fascinating, what's fascinating 
is that the Persians won this battle hands down without much of a fight at all because the Egyptians were so nervous about hurting the cats. And then afterwards, they like to scorn and shame them. They took the cats and they like rubbed them in their face after they'd won the battle. And I thought, what a strange battle tactic. Like, can you imagine the strategy session where they're sitting around the table and some dude's like, I've got an idea. And they're like, yeah, what? Cats. Next, what? any other ideas? Dogs. No, right? Like, what a strange, ridiculous strategy. And yet, I don't think it's the strangest strategy that's ever been enacted to fight a war. I actually think that as followers of Jesus, we have a stranger strategy. I think we have a more ridiculous tactic, at least as far as the world would be concerned. I mean, can you imagine early followers of Christ in the midst of a Roman empire where they've all had friends who were pinned to Roman crosses and crucified as enemies of the state? I mean, people in the Romans' eyes who weren't even worth the ground that they are standing on. And can you imagine the followers of Jesus gathered into a room and talking about, well, how are we going to overthrow the Roman Empire? How are we going to be the people who come out on the other end victorious? Like maybe we could gather enough of a following that we could get the voting block and we could win it that way. Maybe we could could get a a bigger army than Rome and everyone and followers of Jesus would have looked around and gone, that's absolutely crazy. That's insane. We never, we'll never get it that way. And I wonder if at any point in time there was a disciple or an apostle who raised his hand and said, you know what? The Jesus way isn't the way of a bigger or better army. It's not the way of a bigger or better strategy. It's not the way of the the majority getting their way and imposing it on others. The Jesus way is more ridiculous than bringing cats into battle. (laughs) What if we loved our enemies? Did you know that historians, secular historians, wrestle with this idea. How in the world did this ragtag band of early followers of Jesus who had zero power come to have massive influence? How did people who had nothing to their name come to have significant impact in a kingdom that was dominated by a powerful empire? It wasn't through gaining a bigger army. It wasn't through getting a voting block. And then just anecdotally, maybe a side note, and post-Constantine and what happened to the church under Constantine and the Roman Empire, we have, as followers of Christ, bought the lie that if we can get the majority of the people behind us, then we'll be successful. And if we can get the majority of people behind us, then we'll have influence. And we've bought the lie in tying power and influence together. And what Jesus wants to do is say to his early followers, no, 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 no. That's not how you have influence. It's not by having the most power. It's by having the greatest love. And if you want to see how my community will transform the world around them, it's ridiculous. It's, it's more insane than taking cats into battle. But you step back And you look at the pages of history, and as they turn, they affirm that what Jesus said actually works. If you have your Bible, Matthew chapter 5, verse 38. And we'll read the entirety of this section and then explore it. You've heard that it was said, an eye for an eye and a tooth for a tooth. But I tell you, do not resist an evil person. 
If anyone slaps you on the right cheek, turn to them the other cheek also. And if anyone wants to sue you and take your shirt, hand over your coat as well. If anyone forces you to go one mile, go with them two miles. Give to the one who asks, and do not turn away from the one who wants to borrow from you. You've heard that it was said, love your enemy and or love your neighbor and hate your enemy. But I tell you, love your enemies and pray for those who persecute you, that you may be children of your Father in heaven. He causes the sun to rise on the evil and the good and sends the rain on the righteous and the unrighteous. If you love those who love you, what reward will you get? Are not even the tax collectors doing that? And if you greet only your own people, What are you doing more than others? Do not even the pagans, people who don't even believe in God, do not even they do that? Be perfect, therefore, as your heavenly Father is perfect. So pretty low bar. And you know what? Most people, when they read the Sermon on the Mount, there's this line of thinking where we go, well, this is such a high bar. Jesus must have expected that we would read this and know we were going to fail and therefore turn to God's grace. And to turning to God's grace, I say yes and amen, but Jesus expects people who are his followers to be living this out. He expects us to let this teaching sit on us in such a way that it would mess with us a little bit, that we would have to say, I got to die to my kingdom in order to enter the kingdom of God. I've got to surrender some of my rights in order to enter the kingdom. I don't know about you. As a high school student, I can remember wrestling with the way of Jesus. And I can remember sitting in a church, not all that dissimilar to this one, And hearing the Sermon on the Mount taught and thinking, I don't want anything to do with that. (laughs) I don't want to be walking down the halls of Smoky Hill High School and have somebody slug me in the face and be expected to turn the other cheek. Is Jesus off his rocker here? Like, does he expect us to just be doormats? Is that what we're supposed to do? And all these wrongs going on around us, what in the world is Jesus actually saying? Here's what he's saying. He's saying that allegiance to him, allegiance to Jesus, radically transforms not only the attitude that we have towards people, but the way that we act towards people. Our attitudes and our actions are radically transformed because of life in the kingdom. I I had the chance to coach baseball again this summer, a little nine-year-old little league team, and I love coaching. And I love, I get such joy seeing a child come and and, and learn the game a little bit and learn how to take a a good cut baseball-wise, step up to the plate and hit it. And I find so much joy in seeing what we do in practice actually executed on the field. And I find so much joy in seeing that because it happens so little. (laughs) Most of the time, I'm like, Were you there on Wednesday? Did somebody steal your brain in between Wednesday and Saturday? Because we talked about this. The cutoff man. You're supposed to cut the ball off, right? Okay, so this isn't my own personal counseling session. I've had those. But I I wonder how many times we come into a service and we go, oh, Jesus, we agree with you. Yes. Yeah, that's how to throw the ball. That's how to hit the ball. That's how to live life. 
we agree with you, Jesus. And then we get out onto the field of life, and we just go back to the way we've always done things. We just go back to what's deeply ingrained in our soul. And what Jesus is going to gently press on us this morning is, look up at me for a second, Jesus isn't looking for admirers. He's not looking for people who agree with his teaching, who go intellectually, I get it, yeah, that's it. That's a, he is looking for people who would follow him. It's on the wall right out front. It's our mission as a church is to help people live in the way of Jesus with the heart of Jesus. And his teaching here isn't one that's difficult to understand. We'll talk about some of the pieces that, that are nuanced and that I think are, at the onset are difficult. But ultimately, this teaching is really actually pretty straightforward. But it's easier understood here than it is lived out in the world. But make no mistake about it. I think Martin Luther King Jr., who lived this teaching out maybe better than anybody in our modern day, said it like this. He said, one of the greatest tragedies of life is that men and women seldom bridge the gulf between profession and practice, between saying and doing. So the question in front of us today is not, will we trust Jesus as Savior? In fact, this passage is for people who've done that. If you're not a follower of Christ, you're sort of off the hook this morning. You get to look on to the way of Jesus and sort of window shop and go, wow, that's a pretty drastic teaching. But for people who have declared, Jesus, you are my Lord, today he wants to say to you, am I also your rabbi? Can I teach you how to live in my way with my heart? So if we've, as we've been doing the last few weeks, let me just point out a few things that Jesus is not saying, and then we're going to jump into what he is saying, okay? Here's what Jesus is not saying in this passage. He's not saying that you have to be a doormat. In fact, actually, he's saying the opposite. We'll talk about that. He's not saying that if you're in an abusive relationship or an abusive home, an abusive situation, that you've just got to continue to take it. That's not what he's saying. He's also not saying that you must be a political pacifist if you're going to live out this passage. Although I would say that there's a massive stream of Christianity that has applied it that way, you can wrestle with what you think it's saying in that regards. And here's the last thing. This passage of scripture is not saying that we do not combat and resist evil. The church is called to be a prophetic voice that speaks up when things are wrong, when speaks, that speaks out when people are dehumanized. We are not called to be passive observers of reality. We are called to be active participants in renewal. Amen? Okay, so now that we've got that out of the way, what in the world is Jesus saying? If he's not saying all those things, what's he saying? I'm so glad you asked that. Matthew chapter 5, starting in verse 38, let's explore. But you've heard it said that it was said, Jesus says, and this is his methodology of inviting them to a Bible study. <laughs> you've heard that it was said in, in Torah. You've heard that it was said in your writings. An eye for an eye and a tooth for a tooth. In fact, there's three different times in the Old Testament scriptures that this law was given. It was the law of limited retaliation, lex talionis in the Latin. In fact, it's so fun to say, would you say it with me? Lex talionis, the law of retaliation. It means that you can only wrong somebody back to the extent that they've wronged you. 
There was this really interesting study they did at one point in time where they had somebody sort of hit another person's thumb and they rated the scale of how hard it was. And what happened was our perception of the way that we're treated is always more so than the way that the person thinks they're treating us. So what happens? This cyclical cycle of you've wronged me and I'm going to wrong you and I'm going to get you back a little bit more than you got me and therefore an eye for a hand. (laughs) Sounds pretty good sometimes, doesn't it? And in the Old Testament scriptures, Lex Talionis, an eye for an eye was actually a very gracious way of people interacting with each other. I'm only going to wrong you as much as you wronged me. No more, no less. We're just going to make it even. And what Jesus points out is, Not that he disagrees with that, he just goes, that's a pretty low bar. But I tell you, he says, do not resist an evil person. He he invites us to a completely different way of interacting with people who we perceive, and they might too, to be against us. Um, Paul in the book of Romans will say it like this, do not take revenge, my dear friends, But leave room for God's wrath, for it's written, it is mine to avenge, I will repay, says the Lord. On the contrary, he goes, so so instead of revenge, try this. If your enemy's hungry, feed him. If he's thirsty, give him something to drink. In doing this, I used to love this passage of scripture as a college student, in doing this, you will heap burning coals on his head. Do not be overcome by evil, but overcome evil with good. Here's what the teachings of Jesus and the Apostle Paul, here's what they say. You can either, you can either get even or you can have influence. You can either try to get revenge or you can have massive impact on the people around you, but you cannot do both. You cannot do both. You can either have revenge or gospel influence, but you cannot have both. So think of, for the early followers of Jesus in the Roman Empire, how hard this must have been. Probably about as hard as it is for you. I mean, can we admit that this is a radical teaching of Jesus? But if I could summarize it, here's what he's saying. Here's what he's saying. He's saying that we have got to be, our attitude towards people has to be what I'm going to call tough-minded this morning. And here's what I mean by that. We refuse to allow the way that we are treated to determine the way we respond. Oh, gosh. Jesus, like, take your foot off the gas a little bit. Isn't it so easy to just get in the tick-for-tack type of an interaction with people? They did this to me, therefore I must do this to them. And Jesus says, no, 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 no. You actually, life in my kingdom, you do not have to do that. You could allow creative engagement with the people around you to replace justified retaliation. Instead of just retaliating, even if it's your right, what if you thought about it a little bit more? What if you took a step back and prayed and thought, Jesus, how would you want me to interact with this person that's just wronged me? What might that look like? People in the early church in the Roman Empire were wrestling with this. And you know what the number one emotion we have to get over in order to live with this is fear. Fear. What's going to happen to me? 
what's going to happen to me if I do that? If I turn the other cheek, what happens? If I go the extra mile, what happens? I love the way that Dallas Willard said it. He said it like this. This world with all of its evil is a perfectly good and safe place for anyone to be, no matter their circumstances, if they have only placed their lives in the hands of Jesus and his father. Okay, so, so now, if we're in the kingdom, we're free. We're free to go, Jesus, what would you have me do in this situation? And so in order to not be ambiguous, Jesus says, let me give you a few examples. If you're going, what might this look like? That's a great question. Jesus is really glad you asked that. And he's going to give you four pictures of what it might look like. And these are brilliant pictures of creative engagement rather than justified retaliation. And here's what he says. Here's what he says. The first picture If someone slaps you on the right cheek, turn to them the other cheek also. I used to read this, if somebody slugs you in the face, let them slug you again. That isn't what Jesus says. Jesus says, he's very specific. If somebody slaps you on the right cheek. Now, here's the question. If you were to slap somebody on the right cheek, what hand would you use? Okay, so look at the person next to you, and then slap them on the right cheek, okay? What hand did you use, right? You would have to use, in order to slap them on the right, their right cheek, you would have to use your what? Left hand, right? And in this culture, the left hand was the dirty hand. It was not used for things like eating and things like signing papers, and it was used for things like wiping, okay? It was not the clean hand. And so, yeah, you're welcome, okay? So, in an honor-shame culture, in an honor-shame culture, Jesus is not, hear me, hear me, hear me on this, Jesus is not talking about somebody who's being abused. He's talking about somebody who's being demeaned. He's talking about somebody who socially is getting pushed down and either slapped with a left hand or backhanded with a right hand like a little child would have been. It was a way to insult somebody. And typically we've seen or we would imagine we have two responses in mind to that, two options. We can either, eye for an eye, slap him back or slap him back, or we could run away. Or we could do what I probably would have done in high school, slap and run, right? Sort of a combo of the both, slap and then as fast as you can, right? And Jesus is going, what if there's a third way? What if you look at the person who's dishonoring you and demeaning you and turn the other cheek and say, why don't you hit me with your right hand and treat me like a man or like a woman? Why don't you treat me like a person? Because that's what I am. And Jesus is inviting us to a way of being and creative influence where vulnerability replaces revenge. See, when I feel like I need to defend myself, I lose my influence. Okay, so at work, when you feel like you need to defend yourself, when you feel like your honor has been violated and you need to get even in order to be right, Jesus would say, you can do that, but you lose your influence. And isn't it better to influence the people around you than just to get paid back? 
Oh, it's way better to win the people around you over rather than an eye for an eye and a tooth for a tooth. Jesus would say that you now as an agent of the kingdom can look for strong, creative ways to refuse to participate in the mutual ongoing hostility that is so rampant in our world and so ineffective, can we agree? I mean, is it, is it working for us? Is a bomb for a bomb and a gun for a gun and uh, you fill in the blank and I for an eye? How's, how's that working for us, you guys? I'll take your silence to suggest that it's not. And I don't think it is either. And Jesus invites his people to a different way. What if, what if you embrace the posture of vulnerability instead of revenge? What if he did that? Here's his second picture. He says, and if anyone wants to, what? Sue you, take you to court, and take your shirt, hand over your coat as well. Now, first century dress codes are essential to understanding what Jesus is saying. Somebody's being sued for their shirt. Now, in first century Israel, most people didn't wear pants, okay? That's for free this morning. That's not the point. So they would have an undershirt that was sort of their underwear that would be a long undershirt that would cover their uh, sort of under, use as their undergarments, and over that would be a coat. And the coat is what they would use as a pillow at night or as a sleeping bag, but it was a way to keep themselves covered. So somebody is being sued by a wealthy person. A poor person is being sued by a wealthy person for their underwear. And Jesus says, how about you give them your coat also? What would happen? They would be naked. And everyone around would go, that person's naked. Jesus is saying, hey, what if you didn't let yourself cover up the wrongs that people are perpetrating against you? As the one who's a little bit lower on the social totem pole, as the one who doesn't have as much socioeconomic stability in your life, what if you pointed out this gross offense that's being perpetrated against you by giving away another piece of your clothing? Jesus is teaching a methodology for impact where he's saying, listen, what if, what if you valued your impact that you were having more than the comfort that you so dearly wanted? Think about this for a moment with me, you guys. The people who have made the greatest impact in our world are people who are willing to sacrifice a little bit of comfort. Are they not? People who are willing to have a hard conversation, people who are willing to take a financial risk, people who are willing to forgive when it would be easier to grow bitter, these are the types of people who consistently throughout time have changed our world. I think of um, Dr. Jeff Brodsky. And we have the, the joy of partnering with He and Joy International. Every year we participate in the Barefoot Mile, and it's coming up again this Saturday, July 21st, Climate Park, 9 o'clock. For years, Jeff Brodsky has been going barefoot in order to go, hey, there's an issue. We need to be aware of it. He's given away his coat in order to expose a wrong. It's what Jesus is teaching. What if we valued our impact over our comfort? What, how might that look? What if we didn't allow anxiety and fear to rule, but we were free to step into the places God's called us to step into? And we, we might volunteer in our kids' or student ministry. We might have a conversation about our faith. What ways are we stepping back from impact 
in favor of comfort. Jesus says, no, 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 no. Draw it out. Be discomfort. Be embrace a posture of discomfort in order to have great impact. Here's the next picture he points. Paints. If anyone forces you to go one mile, go with them, what? Two. You maybe know the context in the Roman Empire, a Roman soldier, part of a Roman garrison, could be marching along and at any point could call somebody who was a citizen of a country that they were occupying to carry their gear a mile. So you imagine uh, planning a nice picnic for your family on Sabbath, sitting around a lake, enjoying it. You've just sat down. You've got your pork chop, your lamb chops, and your hummus, and you're just about to sit down, and a Roman soldier comes up and says to you, carry my gear. And Jesus wants to step into this moment that most of his readers, his listeners have had, where they've been inconvenienced by the Roman Empire. And Jesus goes, I know everything in you wants to go one mile, drop their gear, and tell them to go back to wherever they came from. But what Jesus says is, what if you started to see the people around you, not just as soldiers, but maybe as sons and daughters of somebody? Not as, as people of the state of Rome, but as image bearers of God? And as people who may be having a ridiculously hard day, and instead of dehumanizing the people that are against us, what if as followers of Jesus, we started to have compassion on them? Because isn't it so easy to dehumanize the people who we don't like? And Jesus says, what if life in my kingdom, what if you look for ways to actually serve the people around you? Even people that were inconvenient. I often think it would be way easier to just share my Google calendar with Jesus so that he could bring me opportunities to serve him that fit in the slots that I have open. Is anyone with me? Right? What I've found is that he has a copy of my Google calendar and he often picks the most inconvenient times to bring people into my life. Right? And the question is in those moments... Are we willing to serve people? Are we willing to go the extra mile and extend compassion, maybe relationally or maybe financially? We went the extra mile. It's not a law. Jesus isn't saying, you don't always have to do this. That's not, that's not his point. His point is, you could if you wanted to. It's an option for you now. Instead of bitterly gritting your teeth, going one, dropping it and saying, I'm out. So vulnerability replaces revenge. Impact replaces comfort. Compassion replaces inconvenience. And finally, here's what Jesus says. And give. Give to the one who asks you. Don't turn away from the one who wants to borrow from you. Jesus uses an illustration of a story that every one of his readers would have understood and we understand too. There's certain people in our life that are needy, aren't there? There's certain people in our life that always seem to be sort of in the place where they, they want something from us. And Jesus says, hey, what if you looked at those people, and I don't know about you, I often make up a story about how they got to where they got, and how they, if they would have made these decisions like I've made, then they wouldn't be in this position, right? And if they just pulled themselves up by their bootstrap like I've done, then they'd be okay. And you know what that's called? Judgment. 
It's called judgment. And Jesus is saying, we're so prone to doing this. What if instead of when somebody's needy, what if instead of judging and coming up with a story, what if you were generous to them? It doesn't mean you have to give to every single person you see that's in need. It means that your heart is now free from making up a story so that you can love the people that the Spirit would say, I'm calling you to step into this. I'm calling you to step into this. Sometimes these are called EGR people. You know what that means? Extra grace required people. Do you know some people like that? If you don't, you are people like that. That's the, if you don't know anybody like that, you are that guy. For somebody, somebody's thinking of you, right? And Jesus is saying maybe it's a gift of food, maybe it's a gift of honesty, maybe it's a gift of truth or confrontation or money. He's saying you are free to look at the people in front of you to see them as people and to give them what you think they need most. That's the freedom. That's the kingdom freedom. We do not, we're tough-minded. Our attitudes change by the gospel. We don't just respond to people based on how they treat us. We actually respond to people based on how we've been treated by God. And it changes everything. Four little stories, vignettes that Jesus talks about that are, aren't they just beautiful and brilliant? Aren't they just beautiful and brilliant? I think they are. I mean, yeah, I, I think they are. That when your head, thank you. That when your head and your heart are not consumed with revenge, you're free to love the people around you creatively and invite them to step into the kingdom. Here, here's the way that Jesus continues. Here's what he says. Because it gets easier now. It's really simple. You've heard that it was said, love your neighbor and hate your enemy. Ironically, you can find the command, love your neighbor, all throughout the Old Testament. Specifically, you can go and read it, Leviticus chapter 19. You cannot find hate your enemy anywhere in the Old Testament. So Jesus is picking up a typical teaching that has been popular in that day that took the scriptures and combined them with some other thoughts. And he's saying, you've, you've heard that it was said, love your enemy, or love your neighbor, hate your enemy, but I tell you, love your enemy." And pray for those who persecute you. You know, the number one factor for every person in this room, the number one factor that determines whether or not we like somebody is if we think they like us. It's the number one factor. And we often surround ourselves with people who look like us and talk like us and, and because we love us some us. Right? Everybody does. And Jesus is pushing back against it. I mean, you could find out that Mother Teresa didn't like you, and you're like, Mother Teresa, did she ever do anything great? Right? Like, give me a break. You could, right? And Jesus is pushing back against that mentality and saying, what if, what if, what if? What if you were not only tough-minded, but what if you were tender-hearted? And what if you refused to allow your tribal allegiance to determine the extent of your love? What if you refused to allow the lines that have been drawn in the sand, maybe the flag that you fly, the language that you speak, the color of skin that you have, what if you refused to allow whatever tribe you're a part of to determine that's the extent of my love? 
And what Jesus is doing is looking at his followers and saying, as a follower of mine, as a disciple and as an apprentice of mine, you do not any longer get to determine and choose who you love. You love whoever is in front of you. That's the calling of followers of the way of Jesus. You don't get to choose who you love. You can choose how you love, but you do not get to choose who. And that word love is such a slippery word, isn't it? I mean, we read it and we have some, sometimes a romantic love in mind. And there's a number of different words in the Greek Jesus could have chosen for this word, love. And he chose the word agape. It's this Greek word, uh, we translate it love, but it means to wish and to will for someone's good. It has action attached to it. You can't agape somebody and not have it come out in the way that you treat them. To wish and to will for the good of another. And Jesus says to his followers, look up at me for a moment. You've never met somebody you weren't called to love. In fact, your battle, your battle is not against flesh and blood. You've never met a person who was your enemy. Your battle is not against flesh and blood. It's against, it's against powers and authorities, the enemy in this dark world, but it's not against people. You've never met somebody who you were not called to love. And Jesus makes this point. He's like, he's like okay, how can I illustrate this? Just look around. Look around. Do an experiment, he says. Next time it rains in your neighborhood, go stand in the middle of your street and look up. And then look down your street, and there's probably some really nice people on your street, and maybe people who follow the way of Jesus, and then my guess is there, you have a, a jerk neighbor somewhere down the road, right? And just go look. Walk down to his house when it's raining and see, is the rain hitting jerk neighbor's lawn? Will you answer the question for me? Is it hitting his lawn? Yeah, it is. And then when the sun came up, did it come up on jerk neighbor's lawn, house too? Yeah. And what Jesus says is wired into the fabric and fiber of creation is the ridiculous generosity of God. Theologians call this common grace. It's everywhere. It's oftentimes so common we miss it. But Jesus says, just look around you. The sun rises, the rains come, and it's a picture of the love of God on every person. And what he says is, when you live in the way where you don't just love the people who are like you, but love the people who are opposed to you, you start to look like God. He says that you may be children of your father. It was, a, it was an idiom. It was a picture. It was like saying someone's a chip off the old block. They're exactly like their dad. That when we love radically, we become a reflection of our father. Our Father in heaven. He gives you two practical things you can do. If you're looking like, what do I do with this? He says first, what, what if you prayed for those who were your enemies? When was the last time you did that? Dietrich Bonhoeffer, in a great little book entitled Life Together, he makes this point, and it's true. Try it. He says, it's really hard to hate somebody you pray for. Try it. 
And Jesus says you could pray for them, or second, you could love them, or you could bless them. The people that curse you, what if you looked for active, active, practical ways to bless them? What if in light of this teaching this week, you just said, Jesus, point out for me somebody who I disagree with, or somebody who I just don't like a whole lot, somebody who rubs me the wrong way, and give me a vision for what it looks like to love them this week. Watch you start getting like all these ridiculous gifts from the friends around you who are sitting here and you're like, am I everybody's enemy? What in the world? No. What if you did that this week? What if you did that? See, because Jesus is calling the church to be a light to the world, a city on a hill. And I believe, maybe more than ever, that our world needs us to step into this calling. To not just be admirers and go, Jesus, we like that, we agree with that but to be people who live it out. You know why it's so hard to imagine what would happen if we actually did this? I've been reflecting on this a lot in my life this week. I'm like, God, why is it so hard for me to imagine what it might be like if I did this? And I just sensed the Spirit say to me, it's because you do it so infrequently. Maybe you do too. And here's how he closes. If you love those who love you, what reward will you get? And I don't know that he's talking about a tangible reward, maybe a heavenly reward at some point, but, but I do know that he's talking at least, at least about what we would call an intrinsic reward. If you've ever loved your enemies, if you've ever prayed for those who persecute you, you know that that boomerangs back on your soul and God enlightens something, enlivens something in you and there's a blessing that's intrinsic in living in the way of Jesus. And he says, they're not even the tax collectors doing like the lowest of the low in their culture. They love the people that like them. Come on, Jesus says. And if you greet only your own people, if you're only friends with those who are friends with you and, and you only say hi to the people who say hi to you, what are you doing more than others? Do not even pagans do that? Like the kingdom of God doesn't need to be present for you to do those things, but it is present. Therefore, be perfect as your heavenly father is Perfect. That word perfect in the Greek is the word teleos. Will you say that with me? Teleos. It means to fulfill or to take to an appointed culmination. So you could read it mature. Uh, mature. Therefore, be mature. Grow into maturity. What does Christian maturity look like? How do we measure maturity as a follower of Jesus? It's not based on how many Bible verses you can recite. It's not based on how many classes you've taken. It's not based on how good of a theologian you are or how many questions you can answer in apologetics. Maturity as a follower of Jesus is based on one thing, love. Love. That's what Jesus is teaching. But friends, we can only live, we can only live in the kingdom if we know first that we have been loved by the king. And I want to end by pressing this onto us. I hope it falls like a weight on our souls that we get just how much we have been loved. Because this is the king, this is the king who was on trial and was slapped. And did what? Turned the other cheek. 
And they didn't just take his outer garment and they didn't just take his undergarment. They took everything that he owned, stripped him bare, humiliated him naked, had scornful words lobbed in his direction, and he hangs on the cross naked and exposed in order to declare that you are loved and you're forgiven based on nothing that you've done, but based on everything that he's accomplished on your behalf. And this is not the king that just goes one extra mile. This is the king who carries his cross all the way up to Calvary's hill where he hangs and he dies. And he gives generously. He does not look down on people in judgment. Who's glad that that's the case? Amen? He doesn't look on us in judgment saying they just need to pull themselves up by their bootstraps or if they were a little bit more like me, they'd get it all together. He looks down on us in grace and generously loves his enemies. When we were the enemies of God, Christ loved us and died for us, welcoming us as children of God. Somebody say amen. And friends, it's that love that when it sits on us, actually frees us to not just admire the words of Jesus, but to live them, but to live them. And that's the calling. I'm convinced that there will be opportunities for you this week that you think are meant to destroy you, and what God wants to do is develop you. So I just, I'm going to invite you as we close to have one sort of phrase in mind this week. And it's simply this, opposition is my opportunity. Opposition is my opportunity. So will you, will you just repeat that with me? I'm going to give you uh, just a little scenario, and if you would just repeat, opposition is my opportunity. When I'm wronged, somebody cuts me off in traffic or cuts in front of me at a grocery store, opposition is my opportunity. When I'm criticized or somebody speaks negatively against me or maybe says something that's even untrue about me, opposition is my opportunity. When I'm taken advantage of, when I'm not thanked, when I feel like I just got run over, opposition is my opportunity. When I'm hated, not because of anything I've done, but because of who I am, opportunity is my opportunity. And maybe in that opportunity, we deliver a cup of cold water or a kind word in return. When your head and your heart are not consumed with hate, you are free to love. And when you love, you've never looked more like Jesus in your life. And with one story, and invite our worship team to come up. I, I, I had the chance, if you're looking for a way to maybe apply this or go, I just need a few ideas of what this might look like. I, I, I commend to you Bob Goff's work. I love it. A friend gave me this book recently and I read it. And there was a number of stories in it that I could share with you of Bob Goff loving going into jails in Uganda and ministering to witch doctors and all sorts of crazy things. But there was one story that for me just stood out to me as I read this book. And it was a story of Bob Goff going to teach at a church, I think in Texas, and he was away from his wife, and he was hurrying to get back to his home because he missed her and wanted to spend time with her. And, and he was running late, and he was returning a rental car, and he chose the rental car line that he thought would move the quickest because it was the shortest. And as he got into that line and stuck in that line, he realized that it might have been the shortest because the guy at, front, at the front of that line was the most incompetent person on the face of the planet. 
And so Bob tells the story of sitting in his car wrestling impatiently with, oh man, I chose the wrong line, and this guy, this moron, all these things going through his head. And he gets up to the front, and Jesus does some work in his heart and life as he sits in this line and sort of bitterly grits his, grits his teeth. He opens up a little bit, and the guy says to him, how was your trip? And Bob says, there's a lot of things I wanted to say. And he responded, I had a great time. The car was awesome. You're awesome. Airplanes are awesome. Life is awesome. I hope you have a great day. And he missed his plane, and was walking through the airport, and he heard these feet come up behind him, and he had, had heard the, felt this finger tap on his shoulder, and he turned around, and here's the guy from that line, and the guy looks at him and says, Mr. Goff, I just want you to know that I was at church today, and that sermon that you gave was the most amazing thing I've ever heard. Thank you so much, and he walked away. We don't choose who we love. We just choose how. And we never know how God might use that to change somebody's life, to change somebody's eternity, and also to change us. So Jesus, I pray that this week you would help us see opposition as our opportunity. That in the great words of Martin Luther King Jr., that we'd recognize that darkness can't drive out darkness and only light can do that, that hate can't drive out hate, but only love can do that, that you would make us people of great influence, not because we have the most power, not because we have the majority, but just simply because we live in ridiculous, radical love. Would you transform our lives and the lives of the people around us by it, we pray in Jesus' name, amen.